You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. This is Annie Rose Malamut, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Jello. And today I'm joined by Sam Weinman. Hi, Sam. Hello, friend. Um, Sam, we got to meet when I was a guest on Attack of the Queer Wolf, which you... And that was such a fun episode. It was so fun. And uh, you recently, sadly left attack of the queer wolf i like literally almost teared up when i was listening to that episode because y'all were so cute um thank you that's like uh, no joke that's my favorite episode i think we had so much fun saying goodbye and it was just awesome to be able to do all the special things they kind of gave me free reign over it and my very last episode on it is cam and t-rex so that is called i love trash uh part two i think or reprise amazing that's my mantra in life. I love trash. Same. Yeah. I love trash. I mean, I think that's why we initially hit it off so well, because I remember pretty much cornering you after your episode. And I'm like, hey, we got to talk. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love this shit. Yeah. I love anything sleazy and trashy, which is where this podcast comes from. The impetus <laughs> to make it comes from. And uh, today we're going to be talking about boxing Helena. Yes. And this is a very controversial movie. What is it, Sam? 1993? 94. Oh, you know, it might have been 93 at the festival and then 94 theatrically. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe it is 93. It says 93, but it could have it, okay. yeah, it very well been that. It, it was original. It originally came out in South Korea, I guess. 
weird. I'm also in full Tammy the T-Rex research mode right now, which was 94. Apparently, I can date myself with what I love. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing. Well, the I always sort of think about this movie in the context of the glut of 90s erotic thrillers yes. <laughs> from this time. And I try to place it. Uh, I have an episode about Basic Instinct and we, my friend Sarah and I talked about this in a little bit more detail, but I always try to place these erotic thrillers in some kind of a timeline to see how much they're borrowing from each other and uh, how much they're inspired by each other. But before we get into it, Sam, will you tell us who you are, what you're, what you do, what you're about? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm Sam Wyman. I love trash. Um, but also, uh, <laughs> I am a filmmaker. I write and direct horror movies. Um, my last film, The Quiet Room, is on Shutter right now, and Crypt TV. Um, I'm in a, a segment for December, which is an upcoming holiday horror anthology, and I'm also directing uh, Shutter's follow-up to Horror Noir, and it's going to be a uh, a documentary about LGBTQ representation in horror. It's so exciting. That's yeah. really amazing, and The Quiet Room is amazing. Ah, thank you. I recently watched it and I was so engrossed by it. And I highly recommend that anybody who has Shudder or Crypt TV go watch it because there's just not that much representation of queer men in horror. Um, there's a lot of representations of queer women like you know whether that be good or bad um <laughs> because a lot of it is for the the male gaze and i hesitate to say that that's uh better but it, but there's just really almost zero representation of queer men in horror uh i agree i i just wanted to make something that i i wanted to make the thing that i wanted to see you yeah. know that's usually my rule of thumb and I hadn't seen that, and I wanted to do it right. Uh, mental health is really important to me, so the film takes place in a mental health facility, and I was just tired of seeing people get it wrong. So I wanted to get it right, and I wanted to have a monster played by Alaska Thunderfuck from Drag Race, and I did. So <laughs> Oh, I screamed when I saw that. I was like, who is this queer demon? What? Yes, I, Hattie. I, I love a monster that is so overtly queer. Uh, yes, that you just can see that in Alaska's performance. So that is amazing, and I'm really excited to have Sam on the episode today to talk yeah, about. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, I I'm just thrilled we were able to make it happen, and I'm also thrilled that you picked Boxing Helena <laughs> because I don't think I know anybody else who likes this movie. Uh, real talk i fucking love this movie i do too and the thing is and i know it i know it's got problems and i understand the controversy and i can't wait to dig in with you but i was like if i'm gonna pick a movie i'm gonna pick something uh, that's got my face like this is pretty sam weinman (laughs) as far as taste goes and i love a, a 90s erotic thriller same so and i mean i remember like when i saw it in college and all of the other women around me were like, this is a piece of shit trash film, misogynist trash film. And I was like, I like it. But I, <laughs> but I was like afraid to say it. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? And what did you feel about it? So I'd actually avoided this movie for quite some time. I love obsession films. I particularly love everything single white female onward. I, I I even like The Roommate. And I know The Roommate's trash. You know, like I'm just 
I'm here for obsession films. Have you seen Plush? Did we talk about this? No, I haven't seen Plush. Oh my gosh. I mean, so there are even recent examples where I still feel like have are not quite up to par, but I just, I live in them. Um, but when I'd heard about Boxing Helena, it just didn't sound like my jam. And I kind of did a quick read on the controversy because I was a little bit younger then. And so it wasn't on in my orbit. I saw it this year for the first time. Oh, okay. And so when I saw it, I was screaming audibly. I mean, out loud in a room full of people at every turn because I could not believe I had missed this movie. I felt like there's this part of me that, that I that I had just discovered. Had You know, it, it's like this had been there all along and I had missed it. So, of course, I had to immediately watch it oh, again and again. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like, to be real, I love I think this is a good movie. Like, I don't even... You know, I love trash, and I'm always quick to say that, but I actually think this is, like, an unironically good movie. Um, I'm going to go with you on that. I mean, like, there are a lot of campy factors to it and things that I think um, are obviously over the top, but they're over the top with intention. And that's where it kind of uh, rises above the trash around it. Totally, yeah. I think it's a really earnest and... uh, Honest investigation of hmm, what this movie gets into. Yeah, so let's let's talk about it. So, the movie is written and directed by Jennifer Lynch, who is David Lynch's daughter. So, sort of not surprising that she would make something this surreal, considering mm-hmm. who her father is. Absolutely. And it stars Sherilyn Fenn, gorgeous. As yes. Lena. Julian Sands as a uh, emasculated <laughs> surgeon and Bill Paxton in leather pants. <laughs> oh, my God. Honestly, mood. <laughs> mood. He looks great. <laughs> he looks fantastic. I was screaming on the rewatch because I completely forgot about his outfit. Uh and like I said, it was part of the erotic thriller sequence of the 90s, which was like pretty much spearheaded by Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer Lynch, before, had written the companion novel to Twin Peaks, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, um, which was a bestseller, but very controversial for its graphic sexual content and details of sexual abuse. So she had already had a brush with controversy by the time she made this movie, um, which I found interesting. I didn't realize that. I, I hadn't realized that she had written the novel because I knew when she did the script at the first draft, she was like 19, but she was 25 when it got made, which, by the way, both numbers, unbelievably Unbelievable. Young. Yeah. No, yeah. She wrote it when she was 19. She was in her, she was 18, 19 years old, reading poetry at a place in L.A. called Helena's. Uh, Love. Right. When she was approached by a man named Philippe Caland, who ended up producing Boxing Helena. Mm. And he told her that he had a story that he wanted to tell about a man who loves a woman so much that he cuts her arms and legs off and keeps her in a box. (laughs) And she initially thought it sounded terrible. But after talking with him, she decided to write the film. And then the producers also insisted that she direct the film. So it was her first time writing and directing a film. She was only, like you said, 19 years old. My God. I know it's crazy, and honestly, I'm glad nobody let me make movies at 19. But I mean, she hit, she nailed it. Uh, she, I, re- <laughs> I mean, even 
looking at it and, you know, remembering being a 19 year old woman, uh, it's, it's, it's extremely impressive. And you, you don't see, you definitely see she's heavily influenced by her father's work in this movie. So, you know, it's not like she's, she had no experience with that. Right. Yeah. For being a fucking teenager, it's insane. Uh, and I have a quote from her here where she's talking about her own personal relationship to the story. And she said, I had been born with a really bad case of club feet and was put in a cast the day I was born. I had never crawled. I had scooted because of the bars on my legs. And my grandmother had a replica of the Venus de Milo in her living room. And I would be sat near that. It always struck me the way people looked at the Venus. They didn't see her as broken. They saw her as beautiful. And it really made a huge impact on me. I thought I was broken and that maybe someday someone would find me beautiful. So this idea of a damaged boy who was in an obsessive situation who would try to recreate from his own view the one thing that didn't hurt him or abandon him was this armless, beautiful woman. And therefore, in a dream, uh, recreate this obsessive thing where he would take from one another until we are the size and shape that we think the other person should be for us. And... I think that's complete. That sums up a lot of what this movie is about. Absolutely, it's like Beauty and the Beast meets The Giving Tree. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> she doesn't see this as a horror film, so she sees it as a fairy tale about a wallflower prince charming and a nightmare Snow White. Uh, and you know, there are some her- definitely horrific elements. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't Definitely. know. Yeah, I mean, it's more a thriller than it is a horror movie. But at the same time, I feel like I could make the case that this is a horror film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's smack right in there with all erotic thriller. But it but it's like that. You're right. You're absolutely right. Like, I think the way that the reveals happen. Right. Is what gives us the horror. Yes. Like the way that they would shoot every time that her her body is changed. Or every time that he he removes more of her, it the reveal is made slowly and in like a very a way that you dread it. You don't want him to move because you know that what's underneath it is going to be less. Yes, it's very oh, it's so creepy. Uh, and the film when it came out, its release was largely overshadowed by a lawsuit with Kim Basinger, who dropped out of the film because she was supposed to be, play Helena, but she wanted her to be less bitchy. And they didn't want to re- revise the character, but she ended up signing a contract. And no, she actually didn't sign the contract. Oh, so, okay. this is so what's so fucking bonkers about this. If you don't mind, I'll no, go yeah. ahead. Because this is what I think it's. This is a case of I don't think this would happen this way today. Like it, it was a, it was all about Hollywood verbal agreements, and and so before we had as much emphasis, like this, this case changed a lot of things because there was a long-standing tradition of relying on verbal. Like a yes is a yes, and that's kind of it until mm. things get rolling. And Kim Basinger says that she insisted that she would, she never said yes, and that she said she was interested in the part if they would make those changes. And the changes were get, like when the script came back and the changes were not made, she said she wasn't interested in the part. And she held to this in, in court, but they still ruled that she was responsible and that she had committed verbally. And so, I mean, it's interesting because she was. Uh, she was she had to pay out I think eight million dollars that yes. was the lawsuit and it I mean it's like nuts because she was interested in a part I mean holy shit and I remember reading an article 
because I wanted to catch up on it. And it's the way that they painted her in the article. It was the LA Times. And they're talking about like this role that even sex pop Madonna and Kim Basinger would turn down. And in it, at the end of it, they wrote um, the very last line of the article is that a man is standing outside the courtroom with photos for Kim to autograph. And he has one nude and he says that if he can get her to autograph it, it'll be worth $500. And that's the end of the article. Wow. This is an article about her trial. I mean, so it's like obviously the fuss around her being there is just like, oh, here's this woman who is who has appeared naked in films. It's scandalous. But even she would turn this down. Right. And now they've even reduced her trial to a circus about her body, which essentially is what the film is about, too. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and it, yeah, because the, the way that I because I didn't read any primary sources for this part of the uh, research. So to me, it sounded like hearing from Jennifer Lynch that it she had like signed a contract or something. Oh, uh, okay. But, yeah. No, I mean, I, I buy it. I buy that that's the other side too, you know? Right. But but also, I didn't know that part of it. And that that's interesting in terms of the history of verbal agreements. Um, I mean, she went bankrupt. Kim Basinger went bankrupt from this, from being sued over this. My God. I know. And like you said, Madonna was also considered for the role. That would have been interesting. <laughs> I can't help but watch this movie and imagine Madonna in it. And then immediately imagine Britney Spears in it because I'm like, who is my Madonna? <laughs> <laughs> oh Can my you imagine God. a boxing Helena remake with Britney remake. Spears? <laughs> uh, I think Madonna would have been great in it, actually. Uh, but maybe, I don't know, Cheryl and Fenn had already worked with David Lynch. Right. So I'm sure that Jennifer Lynch knew her. And she was chosen for the title role and she's amazing. She's amazing in it and she's gorgeous and she's sort of the kind of perfect, you know, she's, she's not too much of a star where you can still project a lot of things onto her in this role. Uh, like you don't like Madonna, we would see as Madonna, whereas Sherilyn Fenn, we really see her as Helena. So she, I, I agree. And it's and it's layered, right? Because Madonna was going through all of the things that she was going through at the time for being seen as so revealing. Right. And so we would be watching Madonna perform this role where I definitely see Helena when I watch this movie. Yes. Not absolutely. not Madonna as Helena. So I think it it worked out in the movie's favor. Yeah, I agree. And the film was trashed by critics when it came out. Uh, many accusing Jennifer Lynch of being a misogynist, this 19-year-old girl. <laughs> and one reviewer even said that she deserves to never be loved again. <laughs> oh, what a review. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. So, and she also, uh, Jennifer Lynch also said that there were people picketing outside the movie saying shit like, what do we want, arms and legs? When do we want them now? <laughs> <laughs> so people hated it and I suspect a lot of it is like the way people hate things today where they hate it on principle instead of actually going to see it right so this I mean this was tra traumatic for her she took a really long hiatus from filmmaking and then in 2008 I want to say she came out with a movie called Surveillance which was really positively received um, but she's struggled I, a lot as a filmmaker. I, the the gap in which this happened and that happened is 
is unforgivable to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, yeah. Boxing Bo- Elena. Go ahead. I just wish that we had gotten a whole lot more of this from her in the time when this was happening. I know. Well, from the interview I read with her, it seems like she was really traumatized by the way that people received this movie. And especially being a 19-year-old woman and having other women tell you that you're a misogynist, I think. And then having men tell you you're a misogynist, like telling you about your own experience, I think was really traumatic for her. And then on top of that, having also caught a lot of flack for the diary of Laura Palmer, I think she was just over it for a while. And I can't blame her. I mean, that the response is unjust. I mean, and we'll get into why, but I just, I feel like this movie is not the things that people claim it was. Oh, I, yeah, I totally agree. And it's a really unsettling movie, but it's okay to be uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, it's, it almost kind of reminds me of like, one of the Asian extreme horror films. Yes. I'm sure it would have been received completely differently in a different time and place. Like if it came out now, even I feel like it would be received differently. I'm curious about that because I've been thinking the same thing. Like I'm watching it and I'm like, this feels like the year for boxing Helena for me. I mean, it's kind of in the way that like, yeah, we always loved Jennifer's body. And now all of a sudden the straights realized it too. Now Jennifer's body's a thing. You know, absolutely. And, and at the time think, it was trashed. I it, right. You go back and you see the reviews and you're like, this does not add up to the film I just saw. That's how I feel about Boxing Helena. I I do believe there is a revival or an embrace waiting to happen for this film. And it just hasn't happened yet. Because and if you Jennifer think about Lynch it in, in general. Yes. Agreed. But I cut you off. Sorry. It's hard for me when I can't see when we're not in person talking. <laughs> I know, but we're doing so well. We are, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just think that this, uh, that right now more than ever, exploring, we're talking a lot about um, people telling their own stories. This is a film that when you watch it, feels like you're watching it through the male gaze. Mm. And then slowly you realize uh, it, that's intentional. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, well, the not to I mean the twist at the end actually informs the entire viewing of the film. And it's the only time I would ever support uh it was all just a dream ending. This is the only movie that I truly believe earned it. Oh yeah, I completely agree because it's the what happens in it is so fantastical and horrific that you want you really want it to be all a dream at the end. Well and that it is his dream, that means that everything that takes place in this movie after she gets hit by a car is specifically a result of male fantasy. Oh, yeah. So just to quickly, like, what... Yeah, the, the, no, 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 it's okay. What Quickly, what the movie is about, it's about this surgeon who obviously was abused by his mother as a child, and he has a girlfriend. He has, like, a, you know, his, his normal life. His mother dies and he is obsessed with this woman named Helena and she does not return his affections. And eventually through a we'll get there when we get really specifically into the plot. She gets in a car accident and he instead of taking her to the hospital cuts off her legs at at his house and keeps her as a captive uh, and 
you know, all of these, uh, these other things happen. And then at the end of the movie, you find out that this was all his dream. So that is like the short and sweet plot of Fox and Helena. Well done. Yeah. And uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, that's that's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, not to be confused with Secret Obsession, which is none of this. Oh, like, my God. On. Secret Obsession. I just wanted it to be, for those of you who don't know, because we're definitely not talking about this movie, Secret Obsession is a Netflix movie that should have been Boxing Helena and just wasn't. I didn't even watch it because I watched the preview and I was like, at first in the preview, I was like, Boxing Helena. And then when it started to get into more what it was really about, I was like, oh, this is a fucking Lifetime movie, which I love Lifetime movies. Don't get me, oh, don't get same, me wrong. same. Yeah, but it's no, it's not a, it doesn't have the, uh, the, the controversial subversive elements of boxing Elena. I actually feel like secret obsession is the movie that should have been protested. Oh my God. (laughs) Boxing Helena is the one that deserves justice. It's really interesting to me what movies get flack and get protested because it's usually movies I like. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I don't know. I think people are just, they have a very hard time being uncomfortable uh, and mm-hmm. this is a very uncomfortable movie. So the movie opens right at a party and we see a neglected, wealthy white child being lectured by this old man about hard work. And we we find out that this this child has this mother this who's this cold, beautiful and cruel woman. And also immediately in this scene, we get uh, Venus de Milo imagery, like mm-hmm. how Jennifer Lynch was talking about in her quote. We see this sculpture in the house of the Venus de Milo. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most people know what the Venus de Milo is, but it's a ancient sculpture, uh, famous ancient sculpture that was found with, with the arms gone. So it's this beautiful naked woman with no arms. Um. And the next thing we we see is this coffin being lowered into the ground. And a, a, another, so we immediately have the Venus de Milo imagery and the box imagery <laughs> uh, right away. So if you didn't know what this movie was going to be about, these are like the major uh, symbols and harbingers of what is to come. And we find out that this funeral that's happening is for this mother from the beginning scene who has died. And I do want to add that quote about the the little boy being lectured. It's like hard work gets you what you want in this world. It immediately is the entitlement. I feel that gets bred into straight men. It's just, if you work hard, you can't, you deserve this. That's essentially what it is. Well, Julian Sands as Dr. Nick Cavanaugh in this movie, he has everything that you could possibly associate with being a successful white American man. Um, Like he's a surgeon. So he has a really Mm -hmm. high power, high paying job. He has a beautiful blonde girlfriend. He has uh, a house. Like he has everything that he could possibly want that he worked, you know, really hard for and also had the generational wealth backing to achieve. And he's still not happy. And he wants more and more and more, uh, and including to possess this woman who doesn't give a fuck about him. So also we, we meet Julian Sands, grown-up Julian Sands, who's the, who's the little boy from the beginning. And um, the first thing I notice is his, 
his fucking haircut. <laughs> oh my god, that haircut. <laughs> the receding hairline with the long hair. <laughs> I'm so I'm so into his look in this movie because I never find him attractive except in the one moment where he's in a tree. And yet he is exactly the person who I believe this is. Like that haircut did it in. Yes. Like they made him into that skeezy guy that's like sweet, but like there's something going on. Well, and he, I think I'm, I'm like, he looks like a skeezy guy. And I also wonder if this, because this is the early 90s, if he was sort of supposed to be like one of these like Fabio slash, um, oh God, well, who was another guy with long hair from the 90s? The guy with the flute. Well, <laughs> oh my God, the guy with the flute, who? <laughs> what was his name? <laughs> but I feel like there was just this like, that was a thing of like this kind of, you know, heart. That's true. That's true. Man with long hair. Um, there's so we 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 pull he pulls up to this gorgeous house, which is his childhood home from the beginning that we assume that he's inherited from his horrible mother. And there are pictures of his mother everywhere. And she's this. Be- we don't know what this I, we don't know what this woman's deal was, why she's so you know fancy and rich and beautiful but yeah she was gorgeous and um this house is like so baroque and but it's baroque but there's also something distinctly 90s about it (laughs) Uh, you can't shake it it feels like the same production design as you would see on any like skinamax showtime after dark or whatever presentation oh in the 90s mixed with like any music video yes that, <laughs> that is was it. a ballad with a soft filter the exactly the cinemax is that is it because that's i mean it's almost like this movie has the aesthetics and tone of a uh, and maybe not tone but mood of a cinemax softcore movie with like the most disturbing elements possible absolutely and i feel like that has to be intentional yes right it's like because it's like here it is on a platter this is what male fantasy is supposed to be oh well and this is also something not to compare her to her father but i I just cannot help it because it's so surreal in the way his his, david lynch's work is i mean he that is something he plays with a lot too in his work of like Mm. you know beautiful picturesque setting with these like blue velvet it's like almost yes sickeningly american and sweet but there's something so off about everything that's going on absolutely uh so we also have a flashback to his cruel mother uh when he a time when he saw her topless uh and she was having just finished having sex with a man and she She's kind of berating him for being a little perv and listening. So we know he's got some issues with women. And I mean, this is also like a very common thing that a lot of serial killers have said that their mm-hmm. mother was like a promiscuous woman who had was cruel and neglectful and had no bo- sexual boundaries with them. So mm-hmm. this is a common trope in horror. Uh he is at a bar, uh, Nick Cavanaugh, Julian Sands, is at a bar with a colleague played by Art Garfunkel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he sees a beautiful Sherilyn Finn, uh, Helena, 
and he flips out and calls his girlfriend Anne and tell her is he tells her in like a manic fit that he's going to keep his mother's house and he goes back to his his mother's house and Anne is there and Anne is like a direct foil to Helena she's a very like simple simple gal she's not yeah. the striking beauty that his mother and Helena are uh so they i see them as being like directly contrasted like this is the good good girl that he should be with but Mm -hmm. he doesn't want uh nick goes for a jog past helena's house so he can creep on her and also one of the creepy i mean i think one of the most successfully creepy scenes in anything in this subgenre because at first it starts out like no he won't do that oh he's not gonna and it just gets so uncomfortable because to me, because it's directed as being so beautiful and shot like, again, like it's a softcore porn. It's shot like we should be okay with it. And it's uncomfortable. Oh, it's shot. That is, you hit the nail on the head with this scene for me. It's like, it's shot like it's normal. Like, yes. this is just something you do when you're lusting and obsessed with someone. You go Absolutely. And, and he climbs up the tree outside her window and watches her. And so this is, there's a lot of voyeurism going on here she's in a silk lavender number that is to die for with matching lingerie (laughs) obsessed with by the way full candelabra lit behind her roses in vases like i mean it's like she's she is full pinup fantasy but with like but like part again beauty and the beast like with this look yes oh yeah i mean she's living her best life like what does she even do we don't even know what she does in this movie like what is her job (laughs) she is just this fantasy and if you told me that she collected vintage candelabras i would believe you yeah (laughs) yeah her room is fully illuminated (laughs) (laughs) and it's just this i mean this is i think maybe my favorite scene in the movie um it's it's all seen from uh nick's point of view so through the window and she's living her best life and also the song woman in chains that my god look we're gonna time out for one second this soundtrack is incredible it really is (laughs) and is only available on because uh, I, I definitely did some digging after this because I'm like I need this I need all of this right now you could it only came on one CD that was issued with the laser discs oh wow release of this film so it's out there on CD but what we need world is a vinyl release just give it to me oh I yes I mean Please. but but the song the song choice in every scene but specifically here is just perfect tears for fears woman in chains 90s tears for fears yes woman in chains like it's <laughs> the most corny song ever but and yet i love it obsessed <laughs> it's perfect and i mean the lyrics of the song are like a world gone crazy keeps a woman in chains and I, it's like this yeah. The song is about woman, women being oppressed, basically. Yes. But it's this, like, romantic, ridiculous power ballad that, I mean, oh, this was another thing in the, the 90s, these 90s erotic thrillers is, like, the, this new age music. Yes. <laughs> always in the background. 
that I love that we see in Single White Female and Basic Instinct and all of those movies. Um, so we see she's not alone. She's actually with another man, Bill Paxton. And Nick loses it seeing her with another man. He's been fully cuckolded. And he is the ultimate cuckold in this movie. Like God, Great use of that word. Yes. Yeah. He is such a, like a beta male. <laughs> Uh, and what's what's so interesting about the choice of the way that again the way that she shot it when you're looking at him in the tree um he's lit in a way where his muscles just look gorgeous they're totally popping it's definitely his best look like i mean he's just and you think oh if she looks into that tree and sees him maybe she'll go for it like honestly the way that it's shot made me think she might see him and and dig it but instead you see her with bill paxton it's like oh right right and she is just, I mean, she also, like, is like his mother, which I'm sure is very triggering for him <laughs> because she just kind of takes lovers. I mean, she just is, she is the ultimate male fantasy, like, run amok almost. Mm-hmm. Like, she has all of the trappings, like, perfect pinup, like you were saying. But at the end of the day, it's really all for her. And right. it's her little world. Um, so he runs away, Nick runs away and he's got all the, he's having all these visions of her fucking this other guy, including a scene. I don't know if you noticed where Sherilyn Fenn, Helena is literally feeding her nipple to Bill Paxton, like a nursing mother. Don't know if I noticed that yeah. highlight, highlight. Yeah, <laughs> literally. I mean, she's on his lap and she's picks up her boob and puts it in his mouth. Yeah, it's it's like, we're not going to be subtle about this. We're going to let you know it that she's a mom here. Yeah, she's his mother. <laughs> Imagery, right. Uh, Nick runs to a phone booth, calls Art Garfunkel, who I believe his name is Lawrence in the movie, and he's desperately asking how to get her back. And Lawrence is like, dude, get a grip. You slept with her once. So this is when we learn that him and he's not just obsessed with Elena. He's also, he's had sex with her before. Which is one of my favorite revelations in this film, because I think a lot of these are predicated on like a betrayal that happens like a minor betrayal or just a a closeness of friendship. And then that person wants to cross the line and the other person's unwilling or maybe had like a partner who they almost cheated on but didn't. But in this case, they did sleep together and she just decided no. Yeah, she didn't. She wasn't feeling it. And how many times has anybody been in that situation? So that's what makes this so brilliant to me well imagine if like a guy you slept with once just became obsessed with you in this way like it's scary because it's terrifying yeah (laughs) um there's some more venus imagery uh because the next scene we see nick is you know lawrence says you know forget her and then of course the next scene is nick in a flower shop sending this elaborate arrangement to helena who he's on a first name basis with yes it's something like, hey, Rachel, yeah, the huge. <laughs> like, we, so we know he's constantly doing this. Yeah. He's fully obsessed. And he's also writing her a note on Venus stationary, like stationary with the birth of Venus on it. So, all, so many good details here. Yes. Yes. Nick, he stands up his girlfriend, Anne, and. He uh, it calls because Anne is like be- literally back at the house waiting for him <laughs> and he calls Helena while she's having sex 
And Helena is all pissed off and she starts, you know, she gets off of Bill Paxton. She starts being a bitch to him. Bill Paxton's name is Ray. And she is, we see that she is a bitch like Nick's mother. Like she just is a is kind is a cold kind of person. I mean, I'm into it because she's just doing whatever she wants to do. hundred uh, percent on board. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent on board with it. And also, may I just add that the yeah. thing that I got out of the scene was like, do you remember a time when people had to pick up their phones when they rang? Now it's like rude if you pick it up, or terrifying if somebody calls you. Oh, but like yeah. this is like, like like Helena's straight up having sex, and she's like, shit, my phone's ringing. Hang on one second. Yeah, <laughs> like I need to answer this. Calling, yeah, and she's like, well, I have to answer it, or it's it's the most important thing in the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she's so pissed when she can't hear anything on the other line. She's so pissed. She immediately loses her boner. She's like over <laughs> over it. Get out of my house. There was nobody on the line. Like yeah, she, she literally full meltdown. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> she's I'm, she's fabulous. And she, she, you know, she says Bill Bill Paxton's like, I'm leaving. Or I should say Ray. He's like, I'm leaving. I'm going to the club to get laid. And she's like, oh, so you can get me some groceries. And yeah, like, yeah, while you're out. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no. And she calls uh, the, the grocer to deliver vodka and lime juice and pomegranates. So that's, I mean, do I need Shh. to say more? <laughs> I mean, again, mood. <laughs> Just like mood. Helena. Yes, I love her. I mean, like I said, what does she even do? She's just fabulous. And I mean, it's pomegranates are also, you know, not to get too deep with it, but pomegranates are also a symbol of fertility and a fruit that's very typically associated with Venus. I think if we're going to get deep with any movie, it's got to be this because there's a lynch involved. Yes, exactly. You know, you know, that's really smart symbolism. Yeah. Uh, were you going to say something? Did I cut you off? Oh, no, no. I was just agreeing. Yeah. I mean, the the pomegranates coupled with all of the Venus imagery, specifically like ancient Greek and Roman and Renaissance Venus imagery, there she's uh, often depicted with fruit. Um, so that's very, I mean, it's very smart from yeah. uh, Jennifer Lynch. So Nick is throwing a party at his new house. And there's this very funny moment where we see him on the phone calling guests, and he's also doodling Helena's name on the guest list over and over, like a and putting her in a box. Yes, putting in her name in a box. Yes, exactly. And Helena is at home. We see her at home in her beautiful house, and Ray Bill Paxton shows up in leather pants and a mesh T-shirt. Work. Yes. Like. I want you to know I'm wearing that right now. I hope so. Yep. I Leather pants, I'm wearing that shirt. right now. <laughs> We're it, twins. Yeah. I mean, he. it's everything. <laughs> like, I screamed rewatching this because I completely forgot about this. I want the spinoff. I want, like, the Netflix 12 episodes of just Bill Paxton wearing that outfit. That's yeah. it. I, I mean, I don't care what he does. I want to watch him get the groceries that Helena wants. You know, that's yeah. it. I just watch. I would just watch a full movie about Bill Paxton in those bands being Helena's little bitch. That sounds great. <laughs> he, on like his shag haircut also, like this, I, I don't know what they were going for with his character. He's, 
I mean, I sort of do. I mean, he just looks like a sleazy, like, 90s dude who did a lot of coke. Honestly, I mean, I related to I was like, oh, I know exactly who this is. Like, all of his lines afterwards and the way he reacted when she changed her mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been with dudes like this. Like, I don't know. I just feel like he's just, he's hot, but that's it. He's a bad boy. He's an archetypal bad boy. Yeah. And they have uh, they have good sex, but she hates him. <laughs> yeah. And they have an argument because Ray is basically trying to own her. And, you know, he she says she's going to Mexico after this party she's going to tonight. And, you know, just on a whim. And he is like, I don't like that. You're going to have to make yourself more available to me. And she's like, no, I'm not. Fuck ready. that. Yeah. So, and again, Helena wins more points with us just being a bad bitch and letting people know what she wants. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with her. I would be obsessed with her, too. I get it. Uh, Helena shows up to Nick's party like as he's obsessively grooming himself in the mirror. And she looks devastating. She's being an ice queen as per usual. Love. And <laughs> love it and it's also even in this scene until later it's even unclear as to if she re- even remembers him or not because uh, she's that cold to him like he's right. nothing to her and she even says to him if you're going to follow me around hold this and gives him her purse and he thanks her <laughs> <laughs> such a little sub bottom love it he is I mean and if I recall correctly, they immediately cut out. It's just like, thank you, next. Like, it's yeah. just really, yeah. And Well well done. It, yes. I mean, she it, she is starts to flirt with this other guy also <laughs> who, well, she, she like throws her scarf at Nick at one point and this other guy is, is like, the, go ahead. Because the other guy is what, the only person under 30 at that party? Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> so. There it is. Uh, I mean, I mean, even under forty. Yeah. <laughs> like it's Helena and this guy, and he, he, the the guy takes the scarf from Nick as a way to like, you know, assert his dominance over him. So again, Nick is like being heavily cucked. <laughs> and again, being guy. straight looks exhausting. It looks horrible. <laughs> I think that we're blessed i mean this yes. movie this movie is uh definitely not an endorsement for heterosexuality <laughs> oh no uh helena is she strips in this very strange scene she's like in this beautiful lingerie she's and she, like takes off her dress and she gets in the fountain like the like a bathing venus like a painting mm-hmm. and she nick literally clutches his chest because he's so overwhelmed with her beauty. Because what else is there to do when you see Helena in a fountain? You have to clutch your chest. Yeah. And it's like slow motion, too. It's so <laughs> funny. Uh, and it's just like, but it's also very clever because you could easily see this as this very cheesy scene. But just. But it's not. It's not. It's very much like this twisted romance novel sort of thing. Because I think you buy into that fantasy perspective pretty quickly because it's so consistent with how it delivers it. I mean, at this point in the movie, it's like, yep, no, I'm in. Yes. I mean, that's the entire tone of the movie and it it never breaks it. And, uh, 
she says to this other guy, Helena says to, when she gets out of the fountain, <laughs> she's drying herself off. And she says to the other, the young guy, a little boy named Nick invited me. So she's, I mean, just cucking him left and right. <laughs> and it also shows very profoundly that he, Nick is essentially still this little boy from the beginning of the movie. Yes. And really, that's, he, he, he's in an arrested development. And as the direction that he was given, he is working hard to get what he wants in this world. Yes. And she seduces this guy she's been flirting with. The other women also at the party hate Helena. She's very much one of those kind of beautiful, bitchy women who uh, other women hate <laughs> because uh, the men are all obsessed with her. But Helena doesn't care that the men are obsessed with her. I mean, she just doesn't even have to try. She's very much her own bitch. Um, so what do you think is behind Helena's decision to go to this party? That is an interesting question. I feel honestly that she goes exclusively to taunt Nick. I feel like that has to be it because she knows that Nick is somewhat stalking her. I mean, I would guess that she has an inkling that the phone calls might be Nick. Yes, I'm sure she does. And like we said, he's been sending her flowers constantly. And, and there's I... this feeling that maybe her her, you know, behavior at this party is a deliberate effort to keep to show Nick that she's really not interested. I think, I literally think she goes just to cuckold him. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think absolutely. That that, yeah, I think that that is the only reason that she goes. And Nick and Anne get in a fight because Anne sees how obsessed he is with Helena. And Helena thanks Nick for the flowers that he sent and leaves with another man. <sighs> So that's, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's why she went. Just mm -hmm. that. And later that night, this is so funny. Later that night, she calls him and tells him that she left her purse and he needs to bring it to the airport at 10.15. <sighs> He's... Classic. It's, I mean, this is very, very femdom. Like, yeah. It's, he is a submissive, like, pay pig, basically, which also kind of made me feel like and this could also be because of my own background reading into this, that Helena is some kind of sex worker. Like, what What does she do? It's very, like, mysterious. Like, God, I wish that it, she explicitly was, because what a fit that would feel. Yeah. Especially if the one time they were together. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not explicit. I mean, I think she's really just supposed to be this, like, archetypal Venus who just kind of doesn't have this outside life um but it, i mean i always go back to sex work because it sex work mirrors so much of cultural attitudes about women um, yes and the way she orders him around is very much like a professional dominatrix honestly uh as she so he gets to the airport late he doesn't even question bringing the purse of course he gets there late probably on purpose and she's furious and insists that her address book is missing from her purse. So she actually goes back to his house with him to get it where he begs her to stay and have lunch with him. And she very clearly openly despises him and says outright that she is not interested in him. Like 
not, doesn't even mince words. Yeah. So there is no, I mean, this is very smart too. I feel like this is very intentional because there is no question here of like if Helena is leading him on, quote unquote, she is very explicitly does not want him. Um, there's a very interesting moment where Helena stares at the Venus de Milo sculpture in the living room and regards it and strokes it even. So there's, again, this Venus, very heavy Venus imagery. Nick reveals that he's had this address book the whole time. And Helena yells at him, calls him crazy. And he's so cute. He had it under like one of those like dinner covers, those like plates with the tray and the lid. And he pulls it up like as if she's going to be like, oh, what a beautiful gift. Yeah. My shit that you stole and hid from me. Yeah, it's, I mean. I, this might be sharing, you know, too much, but I, I had an experience with, but like, that's what we're doing, right? Because yeah. with the podcast, <laughs> you're supposed to share very intimate details of your life with total strangers. <laughs> um, I had an experience with a, with a stalker um, where that I, it's a person I'd never met, but they kept sending gifts and, and the gifts would get bigger and bigger. And it's this idea that it's like, oh, I just want something I want to give you this moment, this moment where you'll be like, oh, now I realize you're you're the one or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I and I, and, and when I saw him do that, I was like, oh, this feels very real. Like suddenly the film. I mean, it, it, he's always been creepy. But for me, that moment was scary. That is very scary. And I mean, it's the movie is also really smart, too, because he's not an overt like he's a creep, but he's not like the kind of person you would meet and be like, oh, this is a creep. Like, right. Which is how it is. They never are. Right. I mean, yeah, it's like there, it's so subtle. It's like, oh, but see, he thought he was doing something nice for her, but he thought that was, you know, something she'd enjoy. And he's really just trying to quote, like to work hard, win her over, you know, because that's what he's been taught to do. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. Like that man in the beginning telling him, and this is what men are told to do in our society. Like, don't take no for an answer. Yeah, she doesn't like you. You know, try, try again. Exactly. Try and win her over. So Helena, who is, by the way, side note, has the best outfits in this movie and is wearing like <laughs> living, living. Her hair is like bouffant. And- I want a Helena ball where <laughs> every queen is just doing a different Helena look. That's a great idea. And she's got, yeah, she's got this bouffant hair. And she's got this like white outfit on. She just looks immaculate in every scene. And she walks into the road because she's like, I'm leaving. I want to get out of here. And as he's imploring her to stay, she's walking backwards, shaking her head at him. And she walks into the road and she gets run over by a car. And the next thing we see is at the hospital where Nick works. Some time has passed and no one has seen Nick for weeks. And the hospital thinks that he's just started working at another hospital and not told them. But God, we, before the internet. I know, right? I'm like, things that could never happen now. <laughs> right. In the Britney Spears remake, we're going to have to rewrite this. Yes, exactly. In the Britney Spears remake, there will be texting. <laughs> 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 One of his colleagues uh, shows up at his house named Alan and finds Helena in a bedroom. And her legs have been amputated. And Nick is keeping her there. So this is the first moment of like pure horror that we get in this movie. Uh, Nick implores Alan not to tell anyone. 
And Alan complies. And this is a very kind of smart commentary on the way that men protect each other. Yes. And, you know, it's very disturbing, but I could see that happening. (laughs) And how this movie does it so smartly is, again, he gives him a bunch of justifications that are paper thin, but they're still justifications. And so Nick's justifications are accepted. Like, well, she wouldn't. He says Helena would never survive in a hospital. Girl, what? Right. <laughs> a woman like Helena. What, what does that even mean? But he right. doesn't question it. It's like, what? She's so, because she's so uh, frail? Or... I, I, I guess because she's so delicate. I don't, I don't yeah. know. And he says that, that he loves her and that she's happy there. And he also offers Alan his job. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. And which kind of cinches the deal for him to not tell anyone. So I feel like this Alan character really only exists for this moment. Yes. Uh, because we really don't see him again. So Helena is obviously horrified by what's happened to her. And she's trying to pretend that her predicament is a dream. And we get more shots of uh, of Venus sculpture here. And I was also thinking that this is also a, a Pygmalion kind of thing. Like Nick is a surgeon and his artistry is altering people's bodies and, mm. and saving them. And he is sort of, he's making Helena into an object to admire basically. And yes. She is like his creation. Um, and to go with the creation theme, I mean, he, in the opening scene, he leaves, or the second scene, he leaves his own mother's funeral to go walk in and help with a surgery. And the surgeon there goes, I thought you were off today. And then he just walks in anyways. And then the other surgeon who was going to operate takes off his gloves. So it's like this guy, like in order, when he has no semblance of control and is like spinning out, to him, it's like playing God is the answer. And a, surgery is his chance to play God. That's a really smart observation, tying it back to that scene. Yeah, I think that the... His a surgeon is such a powerful, respected position, and it, men like this, even in real life, often fall back on these powerful, respected positions that they have to feel in control of something. Yeah, because the following scene right after that, it's like, uh, oh, the parents are out in the waiting room and they're really upset. The mom's really upset, and he says, "Well, let me go give them some good news." And it's like he's—you can see. For anybody else, we might see this moment as being a moment that's like, oh, wow, what a good guy. But you watch him and it's like he is deriving pleasure from being able to play the part of the hero, being able to to give life. He's a white knight. And this goes back to his relationship with Helena, too, because he sees himself as this nice guy. Yep. Uh, And why why would she not want him? So Nick also brings Helena a wheelchair, which infuriates her. And Lawrence comes over, Art Garfunkel, and Nick pretends not to be there. Helena eventually breaks down and starts using the wheelchair, which is also this, like, not functional wheelchair. Right. <laughs> it's like this throne. It's like a, it's a fucking throne. That's what it yeah, is. Yeah, it absolutely is. This, like, velvet chair. And she has nothing but contempt for Nick. And she says to him, I'll never let you care for me. No one ever has and no one ever will. What do you make of that? Okay, so interesting, because I actually think that the ending where it turns out it's a dream, like that this is a fantasy sequence of his, it it actually just makes it 
that's his ultimate fantasy. It's like, oh, this woman, she's so damaged. Nobody's ever been able to, you know, yeah. nobody's ever loved me and you can't do it. So to him, the whole fantasy is the power of winning, the power of making her want him and rely on him and him like taming the shrew, absolutely. so to speak. <clears throat> so I, I think that like, that's absolutely not even something she might even say. It really is just speaking to his fantasy of who he wants her to be. It, it could, could it could be completely untrue. Like it's, and it's sort of how when when women are I hate to even word, use the word promiscuous, but when women have like sexual agency, yes. and are quote unquote sluts, <coughs> people always think like, oh, she's so damaged. Like something must have happened to her. She's like this because nobody's ever loved her. Exactly, she's never had any love. When really, like women are just horny, like anybody else. So. It's that that is a very I mean, I just think that line is so smart, yes, so smart. And also, let's look at Helena and what we've been given, which isn't much. But we look at her life and I would not describe Helena as unhappy. I would describe Helena as somebody who is com- in complete control of what she does and doesn't want. Absolutely. And she's a bitch to Nick because he's a fucking creep. Yes. It's not, it, like she's a woman who knows exactly what to order from the grocery store when she needs it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just, I don't I don't think she's unhappy. I don't think that she's unfulfilled in any way. No, she's extremely and she was going to Mexico on vacation by herself. Right. Yes. She My, knows who she is. Yes. Absolutely. Uh they get in a fight and Nick wheels Helena out into the rain and taunts her to scream for help. So again, he's he's not he he loves this fantasy of him saving her, but he's you know, abusing her like he Ugh. is. And it's so awful it watching really that scene. Is. It's so uncomfortable when he specifically points to the window of the neighbor and he says, here, let's scream loud enough to see if they can hear. And Helena. Right. It's so scary. And, and it's, a, it's a garden state moment, you know, where they're just standing on the edge. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, that's actually not a bad comparison either. Because uh, that but actually movie is like the birth of the manic pixie dream girl. Type. Right. And, uh, you know, Helena is a, a type of manic pixie dream girl. Like Agreed. she's, you know, that moment in the fountain is so manic pixie dream girl. <sighs> yes. So Helena pretend this is so interesting too. Helena pretends to soothe Nick because he's like losing it in the rain. She pretends to soothe Nick and she draws him in close and then slaps him across the face and screams for help. Fucking love that moment that even in Nick's, dream of what happens this is what helena does yes because he knows that what's going on is wrong but it's also part of the fantasy yes is to have this helpless person uh she like her hatred of him fuels his desire to keep pushing well yeah i mean it's that's what makes it to this full-on obsession uh is that she doesn't want him and I mean, we'll get into that when we get to the, the ending. But yeah, there's definitely more of that. Um, she tells Nick that she's never had an orgasm with him and that he shook the entire time they had sex because he was nervous. And he says, I was afraid. And she says, you still should be. So yes. Yes. even even though she is completely you know abused and subjugated she is still like you should be afraid of me yeah and she also says to him you haven't the faintest idea how to make me feel good 
And she all she berates him and says she can hear him crying and jerking off in the house <sighs> at night. And this is so femdom. Yes. <laughs> like he's completely subjugated her and she still doesn't respect him and she openly mocks him. Like she, and she does it so well. She does it so well. She doesn't she's not afraid of him at all. And meanwhile, Ray is is looking for Helena. He's on the hunt. That's a kind of an interesting element when you look at this in retrospect as, as a dream. Um, right. Is Nick is even dreaming of moments where he's not there. Uh, yeah. Like he's dreaming of, of the fuss that would be around it. This man, especially after being cuckolded, right? Like, I mean, he's he's like, oh, the fantasy of this other guy looking for her, but he can't have her. Yes. And because she's I have trapped. her. Yeah. Nick is serving dinner to Helena when Anne comes over. And Helena tries to to scream for help, but Nick gags her and subdues her, and he hides Helena. Anne expresses her concern for him, and Anne kind of, you know, seduces him, and they end up having sex, Nick and Anne, on the floor as Helena watches, but... Nick knows Helena is watching and he also imagines Helena instead of Anne and he comes in like two seconds and Helena watches satisfied. The look on her face. Yes. She's, I mean, she's gagged. I mean, again, she's physically completely helpless. And two things about this moment. One, I could not believe what a hurry Anne was to give in was what a hurry she was in to give him a blowjob. She couldn't get on her knees fast enough. And he just had this look on his face like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, curse. this had better be a fantasy Two, the fact that Helena didn't make more noise because she would have been able to be heard again, I think feeds to the idea that this is Nick's fantasy. Because it's like this is the first moment where we see Helena could have put up more of a struggle and yes. didn't. Yes. And she is so satisfied with Nick coming in like two seconds. Yes. Um, Anne comforts Nick. I mean, Anne is like pathetic. It, yeah. Anne is the pathetic to Helena's power. Uh, she comforts Nick. And she's like, oh, you know, it happens. We can do it again in a little while. It's okay. Like totally catering to his ego, which obviously Nick has no interest in. Right. He needs, he craves Helena's cruelty. And Anne has no idea. So well said. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. He's, he, I honestly think that that's a huge part of the appeal for him. Yeah. Watching Anne behave, actually, yeah, that puts it in such an accurate light for me because every time I would see Anne on screen, I would just see her actively, like, the more that she tried, the more that she was herself, the more he was repulsed by her. And it was so yeah. obvious, but she couldn't see it. And that's exactly it. It's the cruelty that he's so drawn to. Yes, exactly. And it, he tells her, he tells Anne to go. And Anne takes so much abuse from this guy. Um, which is, I mean, I think also plays into his fantasy. Because yeah. I think the real Anne is set up with him like i don't think the real Anne is as submissive as she is in this dream yeah because Anne at the party was not this Anne completely like yes we we saw that she was upset she asserted herself she let him know how she felt she wasn't desperate by any means she was a woman who knew what was up 
she knew what was up. She just kind of seems like a woman who's like trying to just have a normal relationship. And yeah, she didn't seem the most interesting. Obviously, Helena is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But I I'm obsessed. She would, but yeah. But I, this dream Anne is a different Anne than we've seen before. Yes, and the, Helena mocks Nick for his premature performance. And Nick says, if you were a real woman, you'd lie to me about our sex. Yes. And Helena says that when people lie about sex, it's because they love each other and they don't want to hurt each other's feelings. So she did. But she doesn't give a fuck about him. So why would she lie? (laughs) That was interesting. That's interesting. Um, I mean, it's just interesting to me that Nick would imagine that. It kind of makes more sense because I don't think Helena as I don't think that necessarily people do like that makes sense that the fantasy is like, if you love me, you would lie to me about it, you know, right. and and that's what she's getting at, because that means that to Nick under the surface, what it is, is about love. And that's not what a lie is that that could never that's not what is actually happening there in that situation. No, especially. So- and I can't speak to a female perspective, but I can speak to being uncomfortable in a sexual situation and not being as vocal about it and realizing that at the time that there are a lot of things that go through my head, but it's never love. (laughs) No, it's, I mean, I don't have a ton of experience with men outside of sex work, but I know in that context, like there's a million reasons you lie (laughs) about right about sex and like the number one is for for people have sex with men is like avoiding violence (laughs) right so how about that you're gonna call me and hang up or send unwarranted flowers to my house or you know i mean like exactly if if your behavior is already indicating that you're a little unhinged i mean exactly um and she also tries to choke him Uh, she just hates him to absolute disdain. And Nick also imagines his mother, which is, of course, he, he, he sees Helena as a mother figure. Um, Nick sends a bouquet to Helena's to make it look like he doesn't know where she is. Hey, Rachel, me again. Yeah, Yeah. the huge. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he, he also wants to throw Ray off the trail. And then, which, by the way, let's be real, isn't hard to do. It's Ray. Yeah, Ray is not. <laughs> Ray in his leather pants and his pretty face. <laughs> well, I guess the other thing I was thinking too is like, how realistic is it that Ray would even be like hunting Helena down? Like, honestly, he doesn't seem. He seems like he wants to to own her, but he doesn't seem like he really cares about her like that. When I think that's part of the fantasy too, which is like. He desires this woman that other men obsess about, other men would be keeping track of. Yes. You know, where I don't know that the real life Ray would really give a shit. I mean, he got rejected. He goes out and gets his dick wet. And I don't know. I mean, like, Ray is not, I wouldn't put too much on Ray. <laughs> no, not at all. And I don't think, I think it's, he's also in, in Nick's mind, he's hyping up the importance of Helena and Ray's relationship. Yeah. Where I think, Helena gets what she needs from Ray. And he and then gets what she, he needs then, from her. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's a mutual exchange that doesn't have a lot of substance under it. Yes, exactly. So Nick has this moment where he's like watching this video of Helena in the fountain. And I guess someone was filming it. <laughs> and 
But I mean, to be even even deeper with it, like it's it's like um his subconscious memory, like replaying that moment on a screen for his other in the, subconscious to watch. In the Britney Spears remake, we'll what we'll do is we'll have it be like a Snapchat or uh, sorry, an Instagram story, <laughs> you know, and he's just replaying it and replaying it because somebody was obvious. Let's be real. 2019. Now. Helena jumps in a fountain. She's on everybody's Insta story. She's a viral on Twitter. We're all filming it. (laughs) So he he has this moment where he's watching her and he like is listening to opera and it's very dramatic. And the next thing we see, he's working out. So we have this this moment of him seeing him again and then in his full splendor of like being this perfect buff doctor white man Mm -hmm. um and he we then see him giving medicine to helena who it is now revealed is a quadruple amputee because he's cut off her arms as well and he's made her into this full venus fantasy of just her having no way to to harm him physically so and can we talk about that setup, too? Because yeah. what's really interesting to me, and this is what I noticed on this watch, because I feel like it's one of those movies where the symbolism of what's happening around, uh, it becomes more and more prevalent as you watch. But she's surrounded by flowers. She's in her box, which, again, looks like a throne, just like her wheelchair did. And she's presented in a way that is ornamental. Yeah. She is a flower in the flowers. The oh, heat, my God, yeah. It, I think that there's just something about the way that he arranges Helena like he would a bouquet. That is so smart. I mean, and that also makes me think about the perfection and that song at the end, the the tear the petals off of you. Yes. It's likening it to amputation. Um, That the woman as the flower, it, it is so I didn't even think about that, but that's so right. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about representations of disabled bodies. In mm. And amputation is being used here as a symbol. But there are people who are actually amputees or people with amputations in this way. Uh, and wh- like, what do we think of that? Like, it's that it, I always have to ex- be critical and examine these things when we're using people's real life experiences as as a symbol um yeah and i just want to hear what you think about that it's it's tough because he's pruning her like again like an object yeah and i think that while he does make her an amputee he's he's turning her into a complete um Again, I mean, I don't want to call it art because that's, but it is because we keep referencing the Venus, right? Yes. Um, and so I feel the same way where I, I, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, okay, well, what is the intersection here between the way that she's represented? Like when you were talking about um, the protest outside, like what do we want? Arms and legs. I mean, that's so telling of a cultural moment too. Mm. You know, and it's and, and my first thought when I, when I heard that was, oh, God, like, this is just so ableist. Yeah. And that's not even what they're saying. You know, that's not even what... <sighs> they're just trying to make fun of a movie, and yet it's at the expense of people who are disabled. 
Well, it's more ableist than the movie. Right, sure. right. That moment is for sure. I mean, um, yeah. But I don't, I don't entire, I don't know that I, um, that I have a, a problem with that representation because she's not represented as disabled. Like he disables her and she doesn't seem especially, she doesn't comment about it because nothing changes for her and her hatred of Nick. Yes. Well, there are some moments later, you know, where she implies that she feels like less of a woman. Oh, that's true. She does say that. Yeah. And like his fantasy is that he took some of her womanhood. Yes. And I, I'm I'm not even positing this to say that this is like problematic. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's it's something that has to be considered. Absolutely. And when you use people's actual experiences as like a point of, of horror, um, it's just something that we have to acknowledge. And and I I think that like you were saying, like she is made into this and it's very heavily symbolic and it's not meant to reflect any sort of real reality of of being a person with amputations. Um, so it, it doesn't and it's so fantastical. It doesn't like bring it into any sort of like real life experience and it never talks about any kind of real life experience of living that way outside of this house in this room um, but it does be it, it is interesting you know even that conversation makes me think about the fetishization of amputation yes i was yeah because exactly. it obviously is this guy's fetish i mean this is a part of it as a surgeon and uh you know his experience with bodies and his obsession with helena and how in his mind he can trap her yeah um it's all a part of his fantasy of removing her body parts. Yeah, and giving her no agency or any kind of uh, like training and as how to live in the world that way. Yes. And you know, it's very scary too because we put so much trust into doctors. And meanwhile, like the person who's performing your amputation could be thinking of amputation as a way to like disable a person so that they can't protect themselves like that's a very scary thought yes and it's also you know people with amputations are not helpless like they're fully human and it's especially the way that um that helena is portrayed because his amputations are so effective that she just become somebody who has no ability to do anything throughout the house. Yes. Where somebody with amputations would have ability. And exactly. That's what again, I I think that the, that the entire thing being a dream being essentially Nick's fantasy is the saving grace there because seen straightforward. It's not the right depiction. No. And well, and it's, yeah, it's it's very much his fantasy, and it's very grounded in that. And but the other thing is too is like the not to belabor the point, but the symbolic use of amputations is also something else that I've talked about in this podcast, which is like the a point of abjection, a representation of abjection, and uh, you know the some of the scariest thing that that people can imagine are like losing your limbs. You know, like that's how you function. Like that's how you walk that's how you pick things up so it's a very 
effective use of abjection because it's something that we look on and we feel immediate uh, empathetic pangs of of horror and helplessness uh, to imagine our own bodies in that situation. And that is um, problematic. It's because it's playing into the idea of um, somebody with a missing limb as like your um, inspiration porn. Like, you know. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't even thought of it like that. That's so accurate. Yeah. So it's, you know, as somebody who loves this movie, I'm not trying to tear the movie down or anything, but it's, you know, it's real. And it's something that I've also, uh, you know, been lucky enough to learn from uh, disabled film scholars and uh, something that I will writing that I will link to in my Patreon. So uh, just to plug that for a second. (laughs) So she has been disabled in this way and yet she still mocks him and tauntingly there's this really amazing moment where she is in this she's now in this box chair that he's made for her and she tauntingly laughs at him and he has no idea how to react because he sees in this moment that even though he's cut off all of her limbs he still cannot control her um, I was also wondering how they made it look like she has no limbs. <laughs> I I think it's really interesting because if you look at the construction of the box, there's a reflection underneath it that's very, very well lit. Mm-hmm. And so it, it gives you the reflection from the light behind it, right? Which is to imply that there's nothing underneath the box. But then you see that there, it's slightly raised and I think it allowed her to put herself on her knees. Okay. In that way, because, and it's slightly raised because it, it, it gives it a border, but the border itself is the space, I believe, where her limbs are. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I was, I, I actually went back and watched it again because I'm like, ooh, how did they do it? It was, yeah. it was so Because it's convincing. Yeah. And it's done through like practical effects and not any kind of like CGI, which is amazing. And I think it's probably the reason why her throne is, or her, her throne, oh my God, see? <laughs> why her box is so ornate. Yeah. Um, it, or it probably made that an easy decision, but it informed the art of the film, which is why I totally believe in practical effects. I love practical <laughs> effects. Lean into it. More of them, please. Please. <laughs> I love them. Um, so she's now, like we said, she's sitting in this box and they have a conversation where Nick says she needs him and she insists that she doesn't and that Ray is going to kill him. And... She says, you don't love me. You think you can't be a man without me. And he says, but I have you, which is very creepy. Mm-hmm. And Nick gets a phone call from Lawrence, our Garfunkel, and he pretends to put Helena on the phone almost to test her. This is a very disturbing moment also. All of the moments where he's like testing her and trying to get her to, to yell for help are particularly upsetting for me. Because uh, he's like mocking her almost. Yes. She tries to implore Lawrence for help, but there's no one on the phone. He's hung up. You know, I'd say that's probably actually what makes it a horror movie over a thriller. Yeah. That's the moment. It's the way he torments her. Yes. It's true. Like, I mean, he's really It's torturing. truly cruel. Yeah. It's, he's, I mean, cutting off somebody's limbs, like keeping them in your house tormenting them like he's literally torturing her he just thinks he's not because there's all these pretty trappings 
and flowers and, mm-hmm. and he's taking care of her. She tells Nick she hates him and that she wishes he was dead. And he says that he doesn't and that he's getting to know her better all the time. And Helena says, look at what you've done to me. How can I ever look at myself and see myself as worthwhile? You did this to me. So there is definitely like an equa- like a com- equation being made here between the loss of somebody's limbs and their self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nick takes out a gun and he says that he can make her happy if he kills himself and he can even kill her. And this is, this is so abusive. Yep. And he breaks down and lays in her lap and begs her not to leave him, which is very interesting because she literally can't leave him. She screams no when he's going to kill himself because obviously if he kills himself and she's up on that box, there isn't a way down at this it's, point. Exactly. And that's the and only she, reason. Right. And to, so to him, like that fantasy of being the reason she's alive, it's just disturbing. It's yeah, and I mean it really speaks to his psychological landscape and what he wants from her. Right. And when he says don't yeah, he says don't leave me and it's like how could she? Like you yeah. trapped her. She has no choice. Yeah. Helena says she's frightened of everything. Says he's frightened of everything, of women, of me, of yourself. And it, you know, this is like his subconscious talking to him, basically. Like, mm-hmm. he knows that in, in his core, he's really just a scared little boy. Uh, Nick has a vision of Helena. With, this is very interesting, this scene, where she has all of her limbs. And, and she's got her, like, her cape spread, like, full Stevie Nicks. Gonna oh do a little God. bit of it, like, you know, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm living for this music video moment. Yes, she, like, holds her arm out with her sheer cape. And she is stroking him and saying sensual things to him and basically teaching him how to touch a woman and have sex because he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. And this is like a total fantasy for him, like to have this woman like be patient with him and teach him how to touch her. Um, It's even in his, his fantasy is even maternal, not in a sexual sense, but in a sense where it's like Helena is going to show him how to be a man. Oh, he's got serious mommy issues. Like he he he's projecting all of the affection that he wanted his mother to give him onto Helena. Absolutely. And he comes to out of this fantasy and Helena Helena is still an amputee, but she's like staring into his soul. And he hears her voice in his head telling him just the words take her and now (laughs) we this we get the next crazy scene where the nick is he brings this other woman home and fucking enigma is playing (laughs) again perfect choice available on the laser disc yeah <laughs> this song alone is in so many 90s erotic thrillers it's in single white female mm. the same song holy forgot and i mean there's it's just always the same enigma song that's like what is it it's got like the monks in the background and mm-hmm. <laughs> no it's giving us full pure moods yes, volume full two on pure moods Wait, how does the Pure Moods commercial go? Like, 
oh god i used to have it memorized I was yeah same <laughs> i bet if we knew if somewhere somebody's screaming into their radio like their stereo like they know how it starts they know but i'm how sure it if we starts. if we had that beginning we would just run with it yes we'll, we'll figure it out and then we'll put it on your patreon yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i loved pure moods i loved the commercial mm-hmm. this movie epitomizes the pure moods commercial for me <laughs> Yes. I think of movies like this when I think of that. Yes. Uh, so Helena watches Nick have sex with this other woman and she is enjoying it. And she comes when Nick comes. So, uh, of course, very much a fantasy here. Um, Absolutely. And when Nick orgasms, he has a vision of that guy from the party who tosses Helena's shawl back at him and says here you go so his ultimate orgasm is about getting that mass his his conception of masculinity back yes exactly so Nick asks Helena the next day how he did and she uh, tries to play it off like oh you know it was fine you were fine I guess so in his fantasy like Helena is seeing that he's He's really a man and he could he could really like fuck her really well if he wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his fantasy is that she'll see that and she'll realize she was wrong about him. Time passes and Helena and Nick seem to be in kind of a like a peaceful rut used to each other. And so a lot of time has passed between them. And one night Helena asks Nick, if he loves her and uh, how does he love her? And she says, do you love me as a woman or as a possession? She says she wants to feel like a woman again. And can he please give her back some of what he's taken? And they start to kiss. Mm-hmm. So he, his fantasy is to take things away from her and give them back. <laughs> wow. Well said, especially starting with the address book yes literally i mean that's a literal interpretation of it and then yeah wow i mean it's just kind of like this very selfish fantasy that a lot of us have where we stay up at night and we imagine scenarios of like oh and then they're gonna see that i did this for them and blah blah blah. you know it's very disturbing because i think it's it's this very kind of exaggerated um fantasy that is very common that we all have Mm. and it it makes us question our own motivations and you know it's it also questions the whole idea of selflessness and does that really exist and you know it are we you know people pleasing out of some kind of like deep narcissism and needing to be the savior for people uh dark yeah (laughs) and and real, especially when it comes to, I mean, what uh, the nature of gift giving. Yes. Because so much of this moment is about her response to the, the quote, gift mm. that he's giving her. It's all about that. It's all about him and who he is because of his ability to give it. Yes. Or to make her realize the value of it. Yes, the value of him. And He calls the grocery store and he orders vodka, lime juice, and pomegranates, just like Helena used to. 
and the grocer is suspicious and calls Ray. Also interesting. Can you imagine having an order <laughs> that's so on their radar? They're like, hey, girl, somebody did Helena's order. I feel like that's me at Cineholic. Have you been to that vegan cinnamon? Oh, no, sorry. You're not. <laughs> There's a vegan cinnamon roll place here, and it's like maple cookie dough marshmallow. That's my jam. So, and yeah, hopefully, so that, that if somebody else order. called it in, they'd be like, help, Sam is in a box somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get the police on this. God, this is, you know, you used to have a relationship with your local grocer. <laughs> and now if you were in a box in some guy's house, no one would know because everybody uses Seamless. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, my, what would like what would my like order even be? I don't even know. It would be like, uh, yeah, somebody else ordered like French fries. Chers like, <laughs> is so elegant um, and just unique to her. And it's interesting also that they bring that back, like mm-hmm. the, the, her drink of choice. And it's also interesting that Nick, in his fantasies, there's this like neo noirish element in his fantasy of like Ray discovering where Helena is. Um, Nick and Helena begin to kiss more passionately. Also interesting because she can't hold him back. Um, mm. He's completely in control now, and she can't touch him physically. But we, I, I don't know. I mean, it's deeply just. It's disturbingly sensual yes. scene because we are like screaming like, no, but it's also like very romantic in a sick way. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe that I mean, th- that Jennifer Lynch said that she thought of this movie as like a fairy tale ish sick romance. Well, and if you look at the nature of fairy tales, which are so one sided. <laughs> Yeah. And then it, it fits the bill. Definitely. And there are also shots of him kissing interspersed with shots of a Venus de Milo. Mm-hmm. And Ray bursts in and sees them kissing. And he when he sees Helena that's mis- is missing all her limbs, he's horrified. And Helena can't even look him in his face. She's like ashamed too. And Ray begins to attack Nick and Helena begs him not to. She's full on Stockholm syndrome now at this point. A hundred percent. Ray insists that Helena doesn't know what she's saying and that she needs help. And Ray pulls a gun on Nick. And he says she was beautiful. And Nick says she is beautiful. Which... This is the big reveal, right? Yes. It's that it's the fantasy of chivalry. It's fantasy of chivalry, yes. These two men misunderstanding the problem here. The, yeah, to them, it all comes down to a destruction of her beauty. Yeah, exactly. Like, and and Nick's supposed ability to see that she still is beautiful. And what that a beautiful man is misogyny. Yeah, exactly. And Ray, you know, the thing he's most upset about is like, you took her limbs and now she's not beautiful anymore. Right. Like that is his go-to. It's not like, oh my god, this person has been suffering in this house for months. Like, it's not. It's not about her. It's still about him. And to add that layer of the fact that this is all Nick's fantasy, it's like Nick's fantasy is that Ray would only see her as something physical, but he could see who she, what her, her value is, her true worth. Yes. That he could love her for who she is after yes. he's exactly. destroyed or after he's, you know, pruned her down, pruned or pruned. What's the word for when you uh, work on flowers? It's prune, I think. Prune, yeah, after uh, down to the to what's left. 
Yeah. Physically and emotionally. Yeah. I mean, it's like a sick um, creator muse relationship. Mm-hmm. Like she is the muse to his art form of being a surgeon. And, it, you know, he's created like the perfect woman who's in a box who can't leave him. And he uh, he also is fa- he fantasizes about being the only one who understands her. But really, he doesn't know anything about her. And I right. think the reason we don't know anything about her is because he doesn't know anything about her. Exactly. And the whole movie is in his head. Yes. That's why we don't know who Helena really is as a person because he fucking doesn't. Uh, The Venus sculpture is about to fall on Nick and that's when he wakes up in the hospital and Alan is taking care of him and tells him Helena is in recovery from a six-hour surgery. And he runs into Anne on his way to rush to see Helena. We still don't know yet that it's been a dream. And he runs into Anne who kind of is like, you know, this is when we start to think like, oh, what's going on? Because she's like, we should, you know, get together and talk or whatever. And he also runs into a nurse who is the same woman that he had fantasized about having sex with in front of Helena. Mm -hmm. So that's really smart because it shows that like women in his world are like, like some kind of objects for to act out his fantasies on oh shit yeah like he because i was looking at it as this like wizard of oz moment where it's like and you were there but it's like no it's so much more than that yeah i mean it's both right because it's like it also kind of signals to the viewer that there's going to be some weird reveal that's about to happen right and it it it's also shows that he he noticed her and she was in his fantasy um which is very smart very like yeah i don't know like jennifer lynch really went in here (laughs) yes and he sees helena in recovery and she still has all of her limbs and so we see that the whole thing has just been this dream he's been having as he's been passed out in the hospital and that we've got a real christmas carol situation on our hands yes (laughs) because it's christmas day and everything still as is yes and he kisses her hands (sighs) and we see Helena wake up in the hospital looking disturbed and scenes, various scenes from the movie flash by. And we also see a Venus sculpture exploding. Of course. <laughs> that is heavy imagery there. Pure moods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as Nick wakes up, he, he wakes up horrified in bed as the Venus sculpture explodes and he gets out of bed and he longingly hugs the Venus sculpture in, in it, that's in his house. And we hear his voice, a voiceover say, I'm still haunted by my love, those dreams. And we don't know if, if he's, is he haunted by Helena? Is he haunted by his mother? Mm. It, it, it's, it's both of them are this sculpture to him, this un, unattainable Venus. And then the movie ends. And, you know, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this movie that we didn't talk about? No, I think we, I mean, we really nailed it. Other than, I mean, I, I, thinking in terms of like Beauty and the Beast or Taming of the Shrew, this idea that if you're with a man long enough, he can, uh, no matter, you know, that, that beneath the monster, there is somebody worthwhile. And something that I like about this film is there's nothing worthwhile about Nick. And the longer we're with him, we see that all of those things were... We're, those are 
things that he hides behind the power, like even just him being a surgeon, it's just his power. It's not actually him helping, you know, and, and we get this reverse, not reverse beating the beast, but it kind of uh, throws our, it, it throws itself in the face of that trope. Oh, absolutely. I mean, down to like the Stockholm syndrome. Yes. It's, yeah, I mean, he is, as a person, extremely impotent, like sexually impotent, emotionally impotent. Yes. Like he may be this big guy when he's on, when somebody's on the operating table, but that person is unconscious. Like he can only be this big, he can only exercise his power when the other person is helpless. And that, I mean, it's just such a, maybe perhaps a bit ham-fisted, but I think very, yeah, yeah very, like, smart. But, but we love that, right? I, I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> and, it, and also, I, I have to say that the moment, the reveal of where the moment is that it all becomes a dream, the fact that it's after she gets hit by the car, is kind of perfect because it means that really what we're walking away from is still a horrific day. This man manipulated her to miss her trip to Mexico, come back to the house, have a terrible surgery that obviously took six six hours. You know, like she's not having a happy ending here. Yes, she has her limbs, but he still really significantly fucked with her. And his takeaway wasn't, and then I learned my lesson or, wow, what am I going to do now? It was, and I still think of my love, which is a disturbing note to end on. Yes. Because things aren't okay. No. And I mean, he says, I'm still haunted by my love. Like, my right. love. Ugh. Like, not I'm haunted by Helena. I'm haunted by mm. It's my love. Of the chase. Yes. Exactly. And who knows if he would even feel the way that he does about her if she actually reciprocated his feelings. Like, I think he's... Hands down, he wouldn't. Yeah, I think he's addicted to feeling debased by women. Yeah, if Helena was interested in him, he would not be interested in her. For him, the fantasy is conquering, it's overcoming, and it's it's proving his worth through his like his prowess as a man or whatever. I mean, the way he sees it, like, oh, okay, he's so worthwhile because he can turn her, he can change her. Yep. It's not a fantasy that has to do with her at all. No, it's really all about Nick. I mean, this is a movie about him, like. Helena, we never actually we we only see the 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 real Helena very briefly. Like the rest of the Helena of the movie is is Nick's idea of Helena. So mm-hmm. who even knows if she's like actually that cruel? Like, we, I hope that she is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but we have no guarantees, right? She she might be going home to like I don't know, watch Matlock, whatever. I don't know what you did <laughs> in the nineties when you were, you know. <laughs> but she's. You know, I think she's that cruel when it comes to men because I think she knows like what she wants. And I think that that's what men they, they see her as. Um, but it's I mean, we don't we at the end of the day, like we don't know anything really about her. Right. Like, except that she's fabulous. And right. Agreed. <laughs> and like swipe it, right for it, Helena. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love her. And I think Sherilyn Fenn is so good in this role. Agreed. And, you know. Like, iconic, iconic in this role. Yeah, seriously. And, like, I don't think anybody in this movie gets enough credit. Like, no. I don't, I mean, Jennifer Lynch obviously, like, was maligned for this movie. And, I mean, for a 19-year-old to write something this creepy and dark, I think is pretty cool. 
Yeah, I think it's incredible. And we should bring it back. Like, yes. I mean, it's, hey, we're doing it today. Yes. I mean, it's extremely subversive. Like, it, I think people are just horrified even by the idea of like a man cutting off this woman's limbs and keeping her in a box. And I think it's even more, it's even scarier because the way that it's filmed and represented is so like sickeningly sweet and like saccharine and it, you know it's easier to sort of see something like that and have it be literally horrific yes than, than to see something like that and have it be like this creepy romance absolutely so that is boxing helena thank you so much for talking about boxing helena with me this is uh, a dream thank you it was I, it was amazing. I was so like glad to talk about this movie with somebody else who appreciates it. And uh and yeah, this was this was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Um I love talking films with you. So thank you for too. having me. This is a delight. I love it too. You'll have to you'll have to be on again when you can. Anytime you'd like. And where can people find you on social media? I'm at Sam Weinman on Instagram and Twitter. And you know where to find me, Girls Guts Giallo on Instagram and Twitter. Find my Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgutsgiallo. Uh, and until next time, I'm Annie Rose Malamed, and this has been Girls Guts and Giallo. Bye.